not going to be in Joshua this morning. We're going to be a few thousand years past Joshua. Uh, but if you want to find a place in Scripture, just hold for a few minutes. You can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. we will eventually get there. But we'll start off thinking a little bit about history this morning. It was a Wednesday, as it happened, October 31st of 1517. Not that much different from any other of the thousands of other Wednesdays that had ever happened before. It was the fall and the air had cooled down, the leaves are putting on this beautiful show of color on the hillside. It was nice to be a German, nice to live in rural Germany. There had been a pretty good harvest, and they had been, uh, the harvest had been successfully gathered in and had been put away for the impending German winter. The, the people of Wittenberg, Germany, had begun to put away these terrible recollections and the haunting memories of the plague that had only come a few years before and had destroyed so many without mercy. And now there was still talk of this Italian guy named Columbus who maybe only 20 years before had discovered a new world in the West. People, it seemed, knew more than they had ever known before. The newly invented printing press had seen to this. Now this morning, this particular morning and Wednesday morning of October 31st, 1517, one of the monks from the monastery at the edge of town, one of the monks who had been brought in to teach at the university there in Wittenberg, he made his way from the monastery at the edge of town up to the church front door. He had a large sheet of paper rolled up in his hand and probably carried a hammer and uh, a type of a nail to it with him as well. But other than that, there wasn't much else to draw attention to him. You see, the streets of Wittenberg at this time were crowded and busy this Wednesday morning. There was a tremendous sense of excitement in the air because the next day was a special feast day, All Saints Day. All Hallowed Ones. And All Saints Day at the castle there in, in Wittenberg meant that the collection of religious relics was going to be on display. And that meant that there would be hundreds of pilgrims in town to pay admission to see these relics. Now, they didn't come just because they were tourists and interested in viewing ancient things like we might go to a museum today. No. I mean, these, these relics were interesting. I mean, who in their right mind wouldn't pay to see the mummified thumb of Jesus' grandmother, St. Anne? I would. I <laughs> But you've got to understand, that's not the principal reason people stood in line and paid money to see the relics at Wittenberg. They stood in line and paid to visit these relics on All Saints Day 
because viewing these relics provided a wonderful opportunity for these people to obtain a pardon from their sins. Now, the reason that these, they, they were called indulgences, but we can just say a pardon for their sins. And the reason that these were necessary was that they had been taught that Jesus Christ's death was not sufficient to remove the punishment of their sins. I mean, they believed that Jesus' death and resurrection had secured their eternal forgiveness, but for their temporal sins here on earth, well, these sins had to be satisfied, had to be paid for by some type of suffering or by doing some good works or doing works of penance sufficient to offset their sin. So it's like a scale, and they have to do good works to balance the scale. Or by spending time of purification in this mysterious and terrifying place that they referred to as purgatory. Now, of course, they knew that purgatory was not the same as hell, but they also knew they didn't want to go there to experience it anyway. They wanted to avoid it at all costs. So a person could go up to the castle, pay a few coins, go in, and view some of these extraordinary relics, then contemplate their sin, determine to turn, turn over a new leaf, you know, I'm going to do better tomorrow. Then come outwards, come out with an official document stamped and sealed by the Mother Church itself, guaranteeing forgiveness from all punishment of their sins now and more importantly again in the day of their death. And so that was what was going on in this little quiet town in Germany on October 31st of 1517. It was quiet. It was peaceful. I mean, there was hardly any trouble of any kind during this time, except for the plague, and except for the occasional war, and except for the ignorance and the poverty, and except for the encroaching Muslims in the East. I mean, it was a pretty good time to be alive. Doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? <laughs> but then there was this German monk who was about to fasten a piece of paper to the front door of the castle church. Now, to us, that might really sound strange, but in those days, that was the way that you made announcements, and especially here, that was the way that you communicated with other members of the educational field. See, he was a professor at the university, and so he wanted to start a high-level discussion about certain things. And so that was this list that he had rolled up in his hand. He just wanted to talk about it. And that's all he intended to do. He wanted to start a discussion among scholars about a few things. Well, 96, that's more than a few, but a few things that had troubled him, you know, such as these indulgences, the practice of, of selling and of selling the indulgences and, and uh, being able to buy, uh, buy your way out of purgatory, 
about to start something. His name was Martin Luther. And he was about to start the Protestant Reformation. And I wanted to just bring that up and get us thinking about it since Reformation Sunday is coming up at the at the end of the month. And I like to think more about Reformation Sunday and put a stronger emphasis on that than what our society places in, in emphasis on Halloween. I mean, you can't get past that. Every store has Halloween decorations and the Halloween candy. The neighbors have... Uh, a ghost sticking up out of the ground and, and Wicked Witch of the West legs or the East legs sticking up out of the ground. So you can't get past it. But we, as a church, need to think past it. We need to remember where our, uh, I guess in a sense, where our roots come from. And, and why the Protestant Reformation is so important. Henry is learning some Latin words in school. And so I thought it would be good for us to learn a few Latin phrases this morning. And particularly just, just five Latin phrases. They, that won't be really hard at all. And these five phrases, they summarize the Reformation. They summarize the Reformers' uh, beliefs. And they're called the five solas. S-O-L-A, solas. Now, the word sola means alone or only in English. And so these five sola, they present the five fundamental beliefs of the Protestant Reformation. The five pillars which the early reformers believed were essential to the Christian life and practice. You know, think about it. The, these were important in clarifying what is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That, if you think about the church being a living entity, so to speak, the gospel is at the heart. The gospel is the heart, the beating heart of Christianity. And if you mess with a heart and you get something wrong, the heart dies, means the whole body dies. Mm -hmm. And you're left with a corpse. And in one sense, you might have a great, big, impressive body, mm -hmm. a church entity, but without the gospel, it's a dead body. And so, one of the best ways I think that Christians have defended the gospel is to insist on these five phrases as guarding the essential truths of how God saves his people. And so God saves his people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Revealed in Scripture alone, to God's glory alone. The five solas of the Reformation. And, and each one of these, you notice it ended in 
alone. And this alone is crucial because if you add anything, if you add things to grace or to faith or to Christ or to Scripture, if you add anything to God's glory, you destroy the gospel. It becomes a false, false gospel like Paul talks about in Galatians and a false gospel that no longer represents biblical Christianity. And so it's important to, to say, it's important to think about, to remember that biblical Christianity has held these truths, not just from the time of the Reformation, but has held it through all the ages. But they had been forgotten. The church had, gro- had grown cold at that time. And the church needed a Reformation. You see, in, in, in the Middle Ages, in the time of Martin Luther, Everyone, unlike today, actually knew they were sinful. And everyone knew there was a judgment. And so the question was, how do they escape hell and get saved? And so the answer given by the church was, we've got a system of salvation to offer you. A system that even extended beyond the grave. So even when you die, You couldn't get off this treadmill. You still had a purgatory to go through, so taught the church. Your whole life was taken up with a system of going to mass, going to confession, doing penance, praying your set prayers, visiting shrines, buying indulgences, a system where you had to pay for your sins and earn approval from God. And of course, all of this is contradicted by Scripture. You know, Scripture says we're saved by God's grace alone, by His kindness, His mercy, His love. It's only by, simply by, trusting in Him. And what happened was Martin Luther was reading through Romans when he eventually came to a point where he clearly understood Scripture. He clearly understood how the teaching of the church didn't line up with scripture at all. And the printing press had recently been invented. And so Luther's teachings, they could spread kind of like wildfire. Uh, and Luther being in Germany, he was kind of in a, in a good place uh, with a, uh, almost in a protected place. The, uh, the person that was in charge of that area of Germany uh, protected Luther and kept him from coming under attack by the church or even by the Pope. And so these events all took place at a certain time so that it was Martin Luther who struck the match, so to speak, that lit the fire of the Reformation. And these reformers, they developed these phrases to summarize scriptures teach us. They help people remember what is really essential and what the true gospel is, is all about. So, the first one in Latin is sola scriptura and scripture alone. So when the reformers would use the word sola scriptura, they were expressing their concern for the Bible's authority and what it meant 
was that the Bible alone, not the Pope, not the church, not traditions of the church, not church councils, and not even people's subjective feelings, but the Bible, but Scripture alone. Now, other sources of authority have a role to play, and some are even established by God. You've got to have authority within a church, such as church elders. You've got to have authority in the home, the authority of parents over children. But Scripture alone is the ultimate authority. And so if any of these other authorities depart from Scripture, they are to be judged by that Scripture and rejected. Scripture is the authority. Thus we come to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching or rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is a foundational verse for Sola Scriptura. And, you know, it can be said that the seed of the Reformation began to grow as Martin Luther read the Bible in the original languages. And it began to bloom a, a few years later when he was actually under trial. And, and this thought about Scripture alone had, had solidified in his mind. He, he was under trial, and there was this place called the Edith of, of Verbs, where he stood several years later, actually in 1521, and he said this. He had, he, had a, he had a stack of books that he had written, and the priest of the Catholic Church had said, will you change your mind and turn back and believe what the church teaches instead of what Scripture teaches? And he said this, unless I am convinced by the testimonies of Scripture or by clear arguments that I am in error. For popes and councils have often made mistakes and erred and contradicted themselves. Unless I am convinced by Scripture, I cannot withdraw, for I am subject to the Scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Meaning that his heart was true to the word of God. Not true to church teaching or true to the words of other men. But true to the word of God. And this was what he, what he spoke here was a very, a very beautiful expression of probably the most foundational principle that the Reformation was indeed founded on the Word of God sola scriptura and all the reformers like Luther rejected the doctrines of tradition of councils of popes in favor of scripture the next one is solo or sola gratia sola gratia by insisting on grace alone, the reformers were denying 
human methods, human techniques, or strategies could ever bring anyone to faith. They were saying, apart from the grace alone that comes from God, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that flows out of this grace, no one can be saved. Since we, in our lost condition, we human, we human beings are not capable of not seeking, we're not capable of seeking out, we're not capable of cooperating with God's grace. It is grace alone through the work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ. Then they disagree. Hmm? Then they disagree. Yes. <laughs> but it's that grace alone that will raise us from a spiritual death to a spiritual life. This verse is out of Romans. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, Romans 3, 23 and 24. And so Scripture is the only place. Think about this. Scripture, going back to Sola Scriptura, Scripture is the only place that we are told that we are saved by the undeserved acceptance of God. Think about this. One of, sad, I'll pick on Wendy. One of Wendy's favorite movies, and really our favorite, one of our favorites, is The Sound of Music. Who doesn't love The Sound of Music? I'm sure most of you maybe have, have seen that, uh, uh, that movie. And there's a scene in The Sound of Music, uh, moving toward, toward the end, when Maria now is starting to, uh, uh, to, to realize that she's in love with the captain. And there, if you can picture it in mind, they're in the gazebo uh, at twilight. She sings a song to him called Something Good. And the lines go like this. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. So deep down, our human nature kind of tells us that there is a way to save ourselves. We've done something good. Yes, we might require God's assistance, and perhaps God will show us the way, or even send a messenger to lead us back, but we can help. We can cooperate with this. Yet, we're born with this conscience that tells us if we look at the law of God... We're condemned by that law. But then all of a sudden we go over here and we go, well, even though we're condemned by the law of God, the way to get out of this is to just try better next time. Because we might say turn over a new leaf tomorrow. But the struggle is the gospel is not lodged somewhere in our heart or our mind or our will or an emotion. It's an announcement 
that comes to us from Scripture, Sola Scriptura. And that announcement, sadly to say, for the most part, because we are who we are, thinking that there is something good inside of us, and the gospel says they're not. When we hear the gospel, many times it comes to us as foolishness. And our first response might be to laugh, like Abraham's wife Sarah laughed. You know, there's a, uh, uh, a story of this man who fell off a cliff. But on his way down, he managed to grab hold of a branch. And he saved his life. But he realized that, you know, he's holding on to the branch with both hands. So he calls out, Is there anybody up there who can help me? And to his surprise, this voice boomed back. I'm here, and I can help you. But first, you're going to have to let go of the branch. Thinking for a moment about his options, he looks up and calls back again. Is there anybody else who can help me? <laughs> you know, we're looking for someone to help us save ourselves. We're not looking for somebody. To, we're not looking to let go of the branch and let somebody catch us. We're looking for somebody to simply help us help ourselves. But the law of God tells us that even our best works are like filthy rags. And yet it tells us also, the gospel tells us that there is something in God and in his character, his kindness, his goodness, his mercy, his compassion. It's in God and not in us that saves us. And as I've mentioned, many in the church at that time, they believed that they had to do their part in salvation. There was a phrase back then that said, God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. Now, and we've got something like that today, very close to it. God helps those who help themselves. And did you know that somebody went out and did a survey? And first of all, they asked the person if they were uh, what would be classified as an evangelical Christian. And then they asked them if they thought that this phrase, God helps those who help themselves, was in the Bible or was a biblical idea. 84% of the people who claimed to be an evangelical Christian said, yes, that comes out of the Bible. 84%. And of course it doesn't. And of course, during the Reformation, people didn't think this as much. The, the reformers didn't think this at all. They believed that all sinners were justified, declared righteous by God, and saved wholly by grace through faith. Which leads to our next sola. Sola fide. Only by faith. They, the, the reformers never got tired of saying justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. You see, this justification is a declaration of God 
based on the work of Christ. The, maybe the, the, the full way to state to state this understanding is justification is the act of God by which he declares sinners to be righteous because of Christ alone by grace alone through faith alone and this comes from Ephesians it's Ephesians 2 8 and 9 which says for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves it is God's gift not from works so that no one can boast so according to scripture God declares a person and get this 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 is this blows my mind God declares a person to be righteous even before that person actually begins to live righteous before that person becomes righteous so this declaration that the person is righteous is not in response to any spiritual steps forward or in response to any moral steps forward but it's what we would call an imputation of the perfect righteousness of God to that person by, by faith alone when the person trusts in Christ the very that very moment that they trust in Christ they are clothed in his perfect holiness does that mean that you have stopped sinning at that point you know, I could ask a question of how many people in here have stopped sinning now Bill hasn't <laughs> <laughs> but, but th this, is the, this is the wonderful thing isn't it this is the wonderful thing that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness even though as believers we are still sinful, we are now judged by God to be blameless in His sight. Isn't that amazing? The next one. Solus Christus. Only Christ. Christ alone. I mean, the church in the Middle Ages, they spoke about Christ. And of course, a church that fails to speak about Christ isn't a church at all. But this church, the, the medieval church, had added human achievements to the work of Christ so that it was no longer, so that you could no longer say it is Christ's work alone and his atonement that brings about salvation. And the reformers viewed this as probably the most basic, probably the most, the worst of, of heresies against God. Because the church was teaching it was God plus our own righteousness. And so they came up with Christ alone to go against this error. This is found in 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5 reads, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. And so the reformers taught 
that salvation is not found through the church. Salvation is not found by going through a secondary mediator, by going through a priest. Man can go directly to God through Christ. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. This is the doctrine expressed in Solus Christus, Christ alone. And there's a, there's a very important Reformation principle that was developed by another reformer, John Calvin. He said, Christ is the beginning, the middle, and the end, that it is from him that all things must be sought. There is nothing, nothing is or can be found apart from him. And he said this, he said, when we see the whole sum of our salvation, every single part of it, and we must be, we must beware, we must take caution against deriving even the smallest portion from somewhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that he himself possesses it. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, we find them through Christ, in Christ. We find purity in Christ's conception. We find, we find that indulgence in his nativity in which we were made, in which he was made like us in all aspects, being human. But And so in order that he might sympathize with us, if we seek redemption, we find it in his passion. We find acquittal in his condemnation. We, we, we find remission of the curse in his cross. We find satisfaction in his sacrifice. We find purification in his blood. We find newness of, newness of life in his resurrection immortality in his resurrection. So let us draw our full supply from him and none from any other quarter. This is what Calvin writes. And so this, the Reformation more than anything else was an assault on at this time faith in humanity. This is where people were putting their faith. So the Reformation was an attack on faith in humanity and a defense of the idea that God alone is where we should have faith. Christ alone is where we should have faith. And God alone reveals himself to us and saves us. We do not find him. He finds us. The emphasis, Christ alone, Jesus, the only way of knowing what God is really like, the only way of entering into a relationship with him as father instead of as judge. And the only way of being saved from his wrath is Christ alone. Now we have one last sola. Soli de gloria. For God's glory alone. And I think all the other solas can be, in a sense, wrapped up or summed up in this one, 
to God be the glory alone. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans. He said, to him be the glory forever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So we can say to God be the glory alone. But the scripture reference that I just want to uh, point you to is out of 1 Corinthians. And it's 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. When you were going about your day-to-day business, work, school, what, whatever it is, raising a child, it says right here, whatever you do, do that for God's glory. In your marriage relationship, getting married, you do that for God's glory. There is nothing that this verse doesn't have an exception to, does it? Whatever you do, except for this or except for that, there's no exception here. Whatever you do, do for God's glory. The the I think the truth of this can be can be expressed in the answer to a question. And that question is, what is the chief and highest end of man? What is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is that man's chief and highest end, what we're supposed to do, what our purpose in life is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. So the way to enjoy God is to glorify Him. So is is our happiness then, is our happiness and our joy found in God or in something else? I mean, that's, that's a question we have to ask ourselves. If we're to live a life that glorifies Him, where's our happiness found? Is there worship? Is there worship merely entertainment? Or is it worship of the living and true God? So that our worship is bringing glory to Him. Do we see God's grace truly as the only basis of our salvation? Or somewhere in the back of our minds are we still seeking some kind of credit for ourselves? You know, God's, yes, God's brought about the salvation, but He's going to think better of me if I do these things. You know, the reason for our existence as individuals and as a church is to glorify God. We are saved so that we may glorify God joyfully and freely. And even worship. Worship is not primarily for our enjoyment, although it brings joy to our hearts. Worship is for the glory of God. And we must walk together as a church, not only for our encouragement, certainly that's a big part of it, but we must 
walk together for the glory of God. We must evangelize and be witnesses and seek to see other people become Christians, converted for the glory of God. Oh, it's because the Reformers saw that the glory must be ascribed to God and God alone that they cared not to please men. And some of the Reformers paid for this with their lives. They sought to bring the church back to biblical purity. And we must say that it is the principle of soli de gloria that drove the reformers in their work. And if we are to continue in that path, if we are to remain a reforming church, this is the principle that we must hold to with a unbreakable grip. As more and more churches become people-centric or market-sensitive, there's a pressure to do things to please man rather than to please God. But as soon as we begin to compromise on to God be the glory in order to keep members or attract members, we have ceased to become a church that's within the flow of the Reformation. We have ceased to become a reforming church. And in that sense, we cease to become a church of Christ. So we hold on to these five solas tenaciously with a grip that can't be broken as we do our calling to bring the glory to God through our lives, through the various outreaches, through everything that we do in the church. Soli de gloria to God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we stand looking back on events of history and we can see that there were mighty men of God who were raised up, who were called to correct a path, to correct the course of the church. And we can see how you gave them wisdom to formulate certain phrases to remind us what the core of the gospel is. Help us, Father, to never lose that as individuals or as a church. Help us to hold on to that as tight as we can in our hearts and our minds. Father, help us to, to always live our lives to bring you glory. Live our, live our lives with Christ as the focus, keeping our faith on him. Father, then may we 
center of our lives, that that would be what we use as our foundation as we walk through life to know you better. We give you thanks, Father. We give you thanks for the scripture that you've given us. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous, your marvelous light. We praise you.